0: Listen up, this is Brother G2. The greatest weakness of any oppressor is that they always underestimate the oppressed. So I'm encouraging everybody, we need you to invest in the On The Ground podcast. You can reach us at j4j underscore USA on Twitter, and you can reach us at our website, www.j4jalliance.com. We need you all to get with us every Monday night as we celebrate being on the ground. Obari Jumbo, Peace. As-salamu And what up, though? Once again, this is your man, Brother G2. And I'm honored to be with you on our On the Ground podcast. This is the space where we lift up the artistic science and community organizing and we explore real issues that our folks are going through on the ground across the United States and around the world. I'm honored to be with you all today. I have two amazing guests, Brother Mike Hutchison from the Oakland Public Education Network, And my sister, Maria Harmon, who is the co-director of Step Up Louisiana. They are based in both New Orleans and Baton Rouge. Today's show is important. It's critically important because we are talking about something that is going on at a rapid rate throughout this country, but is not getting a lot of attention. And that is how school privatization, uh, that means school closings, the expansion of the charter school industry is energizing the decline of black populations in American cities. We know that when our ancestors evacuated the South and we moved to different cities around the United States, we went for a better life. We went because in many of these places like Mississippi and Arkansas and Alabama, we were not safe. And there's an old saying that if you're a black man, even at 60, you're still a boy. So there was a concerted effort to find a place where we can build lives for our families. And we did just that. We went to places like Oakland, Detroit, Chicago, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., Baltimore. And we saw in the 20th century that we had built vibrant communities. We built communities where we own the businesses, where we had some measure of control over our education institutions and actually built political power in those cities. So we started to see in places like Cleveland and Chicago, the election of African American mayors, Baltimore, Detroit. And what we are seeing now over the last 20 years, in some places is rapid, and in other places is sort of a slow drag, but it's consistent. The decline of our folks in those cities but it's not limited to what we would consider big urban spaces, right? Because big urban spaces also exist in the South. And so that's why our sister is on today, Maria, because she's, you know, does work in America's most African city, New Orleans, Louisiana. And after Hurricane Katrina, we saw a trend that has continued to this day. So hold on to your seats, have your thinking caps on, because we're going to dive into it some today, all right? But before we get into that, we're going to do our member spotlight. But we're going to do it a little differently today. We want to spotlight uh, one of the organizations that's actually on our call. We want to spotlight Oakland Public Education Network. My man, Mike Hutchison. we share a common passion. He's also an MC at heart. Uh, Mike's been rocked around for many years, but now He gives the school board absolute hell in Oakland, California, and he's formed a formidable organization that is helping to lead the fight for education justice. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you, Mike, and just share with the people who you are and a little bit
1: about the Oakland Public Education Network. I'm a proud graduate of Oakland Public Schools and, and proud to say that I was born and raised in Oakland. Here, my family's always been very involved with public education. My mom was a teacher. My dad was an instructor at a junior college. And uh, myself, I worked in the schools for about 20, 25 years. In 2011, 2012 in Oakland, we faced a, a series of school closures, mass school closures, where we had five schools slated for closure. Two of the five schools were schools that I had worked at for 10 years. In the process, we got very political and we tried to organize those school sites against the closures and organized the whole city. Uh, It culminated at the end of the year with Joel Velasquez, a parent at one of the other schools, leading a 17-day sit-in and occupation of the school. Unfortunately, we were not able to save those five schools from closure, but we did stop the school district from their plans to close another 25 schools following that. And coming off of the sit-in and occupation, uh, Hoel and I realized we needed to really take up our organizing to really fight what was being done to our schools in Oakland. And we formed OPEN, Oakland Public Education Network. We've been fighting for the last eight years to try to ensure that every neighborhood has a quality public school within walking distance. And that's led us into uh, a series of different engagements, both with the school board, with the community, and really trying to move people forward on these issues so we don't just understand the attacks that our community is facing, but we're really empowered to fight against it. Uh, In the last three years here in Oakland, uh, school closures has, again, been brought up by our school board, and so Open has been fighting for three years our No Cuts, No Closure campaign, And we've really been active in trying to bring awareness to the community about how our school budgets are being manipulated in order to facilitate these school closures so we're we're really excited after 8 years of hard work we're really starting to to grow and the community's really starting to grasp an understanding of what's happening to our schools and the many ways that we can fight back. And a lot of it's been through the connections we've been able to build both in Oakland, across California, and nationally through Journey for Justice. And so we're mm-hmm. we're really excited. Although we're, we're up against a lot, we're really excited because we've been able to see just the growth in the community's capacity to resist mm-hmm. and fight back and create the kind of schools we need.
0: All right, brother. Thank you very much. So, Folks, know, and, and if you uh, follow Journey for Justice Alliance on Facebook, uh, we're often posting a lot of the work our members are doing. And right now, Open is involved in this fight, as Mike mentioned, to stop a series of school closures. And, and they're doing battle uh, with the school board that is entrenched to do the work of the privatized. So, you know, check us out on Facebook so that you can find out how you can support Open. And we want to, again, say salute. Uh, to you, Mike, and the work you're doing in the Oakland Public Education Network. brother. So thank you for being on tonight. Thank you. Yes, sir. So let's move on. My sister, Maria, why don't you introduce yourself and let folks know who is Step Up Louisiana?
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Maria Harmon. I'm one of the co-founders and co-directors of Step Up Louisiana. We were founded in February of 2017 pretty much our organization gears toward advocating for education and economic justice. We're a membership grassroots-based organization um, where our members lead our campaigns and our strategy towards fighting for justice for all children. And we do organize from a racial justice perspective. And we organize primarily with parents around education where we call our education group uh, a parent union. And we define a parent as any able-bodied and willing adult who genuinely cares about an equitable education for all children. And we utilize the context of the village in defining a parent.
0: Mm, mm. Yes, ma'am. Now you all are not just in New Orleans, you're also in Baton Rouge. So now you all are developing into a statewide organization.
2: Yes, we are. We established our Baton Rouge chapter this year in 2019. Mm. And we're really excited. New Orleans, of course, is uh, predominantly black. The largest black population in the state. And Baton Rouge has a unique makeup. They're 50-50 black and white, but their public school system is predominantly uh, African-American. It's about 80 percent of, of black children mm. are enrolled in the public school district in East Baton Rouge. Pierce.
0: So I want to thank both of you all for joining us on the ground family. And I appreciate you all. And I'm ready to, if we can, just dive into this issue. man. I think, again, it's critical because too often, you know, in our communities, our folks just want to be able to build a stable life, take care of their families, set up roots and be part of what, you know, we've been sold as the American dream. But what we've seen is whether you're talking about redlining, restrictive covenants, urban renewal, the gentle term today, gentrification, there's always been some type of effort to remove us, to one, limit our movement, but now even remove us uh, from these places that we call home. So let's dive into the definition of gentrification. If you go to Google, it says gentrification is a process of changing the character of a neighborhood through the influx of more affluent residents and businesses. Right. And I'm going to be honest with you all. I'm not crazy about the word gentrification because I think is it, the word gentrification takes the sting out of it. Because what they're not talking about is that when you gentrify a neighborhood, you divest in the basic quality of life institutions of the indigenous population. And you invest in the quality of life institutions for the population that you want to attract. So, We think that it's more of a purge. (laughs) When we look at our cities, we feel like we are being purged from those cities. And so I want to share a little bit with you all. You know, in Chicago, in the year 2000, Black people made up 53% of the population. Today, if you look at 2010 census data, it says we're 32% of the population. But if you look at city data, with 29%. So in in less than 20 years most half of our population over 50,000 have been purged from the city of Chicago. And the easy definition is that people are escaping violence. But violence doesn't happen in a vacuum. Violence doesn't happen because people are violent. Violence happens when poverty is concentrated. So what do we see in Chicago? We've seen over 160 school closures before this population dip. And we've also seen the loss of affordable housing. So when the Robert Taylor Homes and the Stateway Gardens housing projects were torn down and the Ida B. Wells housing project and uh, Rockwell Gardens on the west side of Chicago and the Henry Horner Homes on the west side of Chicago were torn down, the city made a commitment to replace 33 percent of it, but they never did. And so what we're finding is that sisters and brothers who used to live in Chicago, I have a friend who worked for Anders in uh, 2016, and she said that every third house she knocked on in Des Moines, Iowa, was a former Chicago resident. So what's happening is the basic quality of life institution, an institution can easily be defined as that is designed to meet a basic need so that structure can be grocery stores right for food production and delivery that structure can be schools for education it can be clean apartments for housing if those institutions are denied then people scramble to find somewhere where they can live so let's say you're a mother you've got three kids and you're on section 8 and you know your building goes condominium and then when you go on when you go online to and another place that accepts a Section 8 certificate, you see Gary, Indiana, or you see Des Moines, Iowa. And so you find yourself, you know, having to make a tough choice of leaving, you know, where you spent your whole life to go to places that, you know, were not home to you. And, and I think that's important and, and that we don't lose that point. So why don't we talk a little bit about what would you say the Black population does today?
2: I would say the black population is probably around maybe 60 to 70 percent. Like the most recent voter poll of registered voters in New Orleans, they made up about 56 percent. So it still outnumbers, you know, white voters in that parish and, you know, the population as well. But we have seen a drastic decline in the African-American population in New Orleans since Hurricane Katrina in 2005.
0: Yes, ma'am. And yeah, that, so that lines up with what the data I have, because I have 56 percent. And there are some people, and I don't know if this is true or not, but their arguments that it's almost 50-50 in New Orleans. So if let's say it's 55 percent, before Hurricane Katrina, it was over 70 percent. So in less than 20 years, you know, we've seen a drastic drop of almost 20 percent of the black population in New Orleans. What would you say for Oakland, Mike? What's the black population in now?
1: We're real close to the numbers that you cited for Chicago. Uh, historically, for the last 60 years, uh, the black population hovered around 50%, uh, 45 to 50%. And it's accelerated in the last five years, uh, the displacement of our black community. Uh, the latest numbers coming out have now uh, the black population in Oakland at 24 to 25%. So again, That's we've right. lost about half of our black population.
0: So. How has school, for either of you to want to jump in, how has school privatization energized that decline?
1: You know, Mm -hmm. kind of a quick timeline for Oakland. You know, Oakland really didn't have a large black community or black population until World War II, when the shipyards really drew in a lot of the black community to start working here. That's what then led to Mm -hmm. the birth of the Black Panther Party in the late 60s. Mm -hmm which then led Mm -hmm. to our communities being flooded with crack cocaine in the 80s and the violence that was attached Mm -hmm. to it. And then um, right Mm -hmm. around 2000, Jerry Brown, who went on to be the governor of California, was Oakland's mayor. And he came up with a plan Mm -hmm. called the 10K plan, which was to do new Mm -hmm. developments, specifically to draw in 10,000 new people to Oakland from outside of Oakland, which expressly Mm -hmm. was not for our community. And at the same time, our school district was taken over by the state in 2003, which led to a series of our traditional black schools being closed across Oakland. And these things kind of hit one after the other. And so all of our anchors in our black community were really systematically attacked over 20 years with school privatization and the school closures that came with it being the last round of attacks Mm -hmm. until now, just to to top Mm -hmm. it off, we have an affordability Mm -hmm. crisis where rents in Oakland Mm -hmm. have doubled over the last three years. And so that's kind of been Mm -hmm. the, the final cap on everything. We're now uh, homes in our traditional black communities are selling for over a million dollars, which again, further displaces Mm -hmm. our community.
0: I can relate to that, man, because in addition to us losing schools. And and for our listeners, you know, our our machete had to be sharp on this because people will say, well, there were empty seats. Or they'll say, well, if the schools were struggling, why not close them? This was the work of our ancestors and our elders during the civil rights movement that called for equity, right? If you have not addressed the scourge of inequity, how could you then say the schools are failing? The fact of the matter is that we've been failed as a public, but instead of contrition for decades of denying our children access to to high quality education, what privatizers do, what corporate interests do is they seize an opportunity to say, this is how we can get them out. And this is how we can redevelop this land, often very valuable real estate in Chicago. In the historic Bronzeville community where where I lived for 17 years and I've worked for the last 25, we see now the same thing. We have right in the hood something that we call million-dollar Row. It's a series of about 30 homes, and they start at $700,000, go up to about $1.6 million. Right off the lakefront, but right in the middle of the hood because Bronzeville is 10 minutes from downtown Chicago right off Chicago's lakefront. And it's similar, just so our listeners can hear it, it's very similar to the old Cabrini Green housing projects. And often when people are not from Chicago and they think about Chicago, they start with well, y'all got Cabrini Green projects, right? Yeah, but not anymore. Where Cabrini Green used to sit, which is 10 minutes from downtown Chicago, right off the lakefront to the north, we are in the same proximity. We're 10 minutes, but we're to the south. We're on the south side of Chicago. But if you go where Cabrini-Green used to be, those thousands of people that lived in Cabrini-Green, there's no evidence that Black people ever lived there. It's a completely different neighborhood. That has been the effort in Bronzeville and what has stopped it or at least paused it or has at least etched out a place for us has been community organizing. So Maria, why don't you share a little bit about how the privatization of schools in New Orleans have led to the decline in the Black population there?
2: privatization of public schools, which are charter schools, and gentrification, they go hand in hand. Like, these developers and these charter school proponents are essentially best of friends in many cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened in, in New Orleans is when they eradicated all of the housing development, like around uh, the Caliope Project, the Milton me the Lafitte projects, they turned all of these housing projects into mixed income housing. Mm-hmm. So, that in itself already took a decline of the black population out of mm-hmm. those housing developments. Like before, mm-hmm. Hurricane Katrina is essentially like the turning point. You know, everybody always reverts to it because it's such a drastic change in the city from then mm-hmm. and now.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And when they eradicated all those housing developments and turned them into mixed income housing, and you had some sense of what people like to call integration. So you mm-hmm. had some uh, newcomers, transplants, of mostly white people who came into the city. And some of them take up facing in some of those mixed income housing areas. Mm-hmm. And you also see the push out of black community members. And mm-hmm. essentially, within the landscape of New Orleans, a lot of them were pushed towards New Orleans East, which is really somewhat of an extension of New Orleans, and it's mm. out- they, they hardly bring any type of development to that area, unfortunately. But mm-hmm. the area is heavily populated with Black homeownership, and this has been happening for the past four years, where it's really started to become a great concern of what do you do with the excessive amount of homelessness in that area? Because mm. whenever you do peach people out that are already economically disadvantaged to a degree... That's the unfortunate outcome that comes Mm -hmm. out of that. Mm -hmm. And also, they eradicated all of the neighborhood-based schools. This is Mm -hmm. why gentrification and charter schools go hand in hand because, you know, when you're trying to do a Black push-out or a Black purge, you know, you're trying to also... Unroot yourself from all of the institutions that were essentially like bedrocks of a community namely your neighborhood schools you know Mm -hmm. and actually community schools were alive and well in New Orleans before Katrina with all of these wraparound supports and Mm -hmm. uh, different aspects that really contributed to the holistic development and education of our children and Mm -hmm. now we don't have that at all Um, it's these pop-up shops charter schools Mm -hmm. that have come in. New Orleans is now 100% Mm chartered. And they shuffle these children around. Like our children have been displaced for the past 14 years. Mm -hmm. We've had families who have been displaced for the past 14 years. And a lot of people say, well, you know, the crime has gone down. You know, we don't have as much as we used to. But the thing is, that's not essentially solving the problem. You think changing the face of a community to decline crime is a solution, but really it's not. All you're doing is just changing the face. And Mm -hmm. you're really contributing to the notion of white supremacy and systemic racism because Mm -hmm. you're playing into the notion that black people innately are criminals. You're playing into that narrative. And that in itself is such a great disadvantage. I'm talking about people who lived in communities for maybe 30, 40 years, saying, well, we need you to move to this other area because we want to take this over and turn it into an Airbnb, you Mm -hmm, know, or mm -hmm, or getting mm -hmm. priced out of their homes to a degree. It's a lot of that has happened, unfortunately.
0: Teach, teach. To our on-the-ground audience, I mean, you're getting it live and direct here, and I want to thank you again, Mike and Maria, for just making it plain, as, as our brother Malcolm used to say. It is the sabotage of our basic quality of life institutions in order to remake urban landscapes. Now I wanna throw something else into the mix. You know, there are census projections that say that white Americans will be a minority by the year 2030. And so if that is true, that means to me political power. And so what's happening, and I think this is also behind a lot of the stuff we see with immigration, is that these Americans, these are being remade and reshaped to make sure that the current power structure stays in place. And so I want to just dive into solutions a little bit. But before I do that, I'm sorry, I want to offer a couple of resources. If you want to take a look at just how gentrification is affecting people in the United States, there's a great page by CityLab. If you just go to City Lab, and that's City Lab, CityLab, you and in that CityLab, C-I-T-Y-L-A-B, there's an article called Gentrification to Decline. Our neighborhoods really Change," And it's an excellent article that really just charts for you a lot of the gentrification trends. Because like we said, this is not germane to New Orleans, Chicago, or Oakland. There's several other prominent cities in the United States. Washington, D.C. What do we used to call Washington, D.C., y'all? What was our nickname for D.C.?
1: Chocolate City.
0: That's right. D.C. was chocolate city, was the land of go-go. It was the land of going by Howard University on Georgia Street and just, you know, enjoying yourself and being around your people and going into African clothing shops and bookstores and stuff like that. It was also a city that it actually organized black political power. A lot of people talk about Marion Barry like he's a joke. And I I say those those folks are missing the point. When Marion Barry came to D.C., he was on fire from his days as a SNCC organizer. He was a world-class community organizer, brother was bad. He had organized an employment program that had gotten thousands of brothers and sisters jobs. And when he became mayor, he actually increased the black middle class. And so even to this day, if you ask people in DC, who was their best mayor despite his recurring drug issues, People in D.C. that I've talked to say, "Now, Marion Barry to this day was our best mayor." And what has happened, unfortunately, since this brother, you know, first left office and has passed away, is that D.C. has become the second most chartered city in the United States. Now, a one bedroom apartment in Washington, D.C. can easily go for three thousand dollars. So a lot of black folks in D.C. now live in Silver Springs. They live in other, you know, cities surrounding D.C., either Virginia or Maryland, because you cannot afford to live in Washington, D.C. And the charter industry cannot escape from school closings. They try to act like they're separate, but they're not because these charter schools benefit from the closing of public schools. Because now they have buildings that they can occupy, often for much less than they would if they were paying rent in some other space. So the scourge of the purge of black people out of American cities is hitting cities all over the country, Cleveland, Philly, New York, Los Angeles. And we see that the common links or links in all of these cities, the loss of affordable housing and the privatization of public education, because Maria just laid it out for y'all, the charter industry, they do not build institutions that are designed to Anchor a community for the next 50, 75, 100 years. They're basically pop-up schools. Sometimes these schools are in, the, in storefronts. They're in the basement of churches. They're, you know, occupying a school that's just been closed. And they're in they there, you know, everything is, is put up by duct tape. <laughs> you know they, they're in there and, and they are not intended to anchor communities. But what they do is help facilitate the removal of our folks. And we have to remember they don't accept all the children in the neighborhood. And then they push out the children who make their portfolios look less attractive. So it's all game, man. And, and it's important for us to know that. Important for us to know that. So let me let me just say this to you all, because we're we, we getting ready to wrap up. So what can we do about this? That's why the name of our show today is, is It Ain't Necessarily So. Because just because they say it don't mean that's what it is. You know, all of us on the phone, we have won organizing victories when people have said this is the way it is, and the will of the community has said, no, it's gonna be this way. So what we have done in Journey for Justice in many of our member cities is our member organizations, Maria told you that that there's this called the parent union. And these committees shape their own platform and then they they build community support for that education platform. And then they begin to move policy. This is, Maria, if I'm wrong, correct me, but this is how you all were able to win the uh, legislation that actually created space for sustainable community schools in other parts of Louisiana. Your education committee built support for your particular ideal, and then you were able to actually move policy to address it. Would you say that's accurate?
2: Yes. Um, of course, we didn't do it alone. We worked in coalition with the teachers union as well. And we were able to actually establish, like I said, community schools were no stranger to New Orleans before Katrina. They just weren't branded as such. But we were successful. And due to that resolution passing, we were successful in having Baton Rouge manifest its first sustainable community school, school branded with that model, mm-hmm. uh, Capital Elementary where they actually are infusing a daycare and a uh, adult education GD program for parents and community members.
0: What I want to share with our on-the-ground audience is that one of the weaknesses that we have and those of us that fight for justice is we tend to work in silos. So folks that work on housing work on housing. Folks that work on education work on education. If you work on climate, you work on climate. But we believe that the time is now to begin to bring those folks together that care about these issues and begin to build a quality of life campaign. You know, because if you are against the privatization of schools, then you should also be against the um, destruction of affordable housing. You should also be against food deserts. There are folks that that work, you know, around, you know, stopping food deserts. And what we think is powerful and that is calling us right now is the formation of quality of life committees in cities around the United States. And that we begin to build quality of life platforms in different cities. Because in many of our cities, it's unfortunately, it's not Republicans that are starving our cities, right? It's Democrats. It's people that have taken our votes for granted for decades. So what if we raise the bar on what we demand from Democrats, but we don't come with our organization. As Maria said, we work with other folks that are like-minded. We build a quality of life campaign, and then we begin to move in that direction to demand stability for our people in our communities. I'll give you an example. In Chicago, we're beginning to do that now. We have a campaign for an elected representative school board in Chicago that said we've been fighting for almost 10 years to do this. Well, really a little more than 10 years. And We also have a campaign now, two campaigns, one for rent control in the city of Chicago. It's called Lift the Ban, and it's saying lift the state ban on rent control. That's picked up a lot of steam, right? And so we've done town halls together with the folks that care about democracy and education and the folks that care about affordable housing. We've also supported a community benefits agreement for the Obama Presidential Center, which includes demands around education, demands around affordable housing. And when we say affordable housing, we don't mean affordable housing, you know, where it's, you know, 80% of the AMI, the area median income. We're talking real affordable housing, like affordable home ownership. People being able to rent apartments at 40% of the area median income. And so we're doing that work to break out of our silos and begin to say, this is how we can begin to that all the basic quality of life institutions that should serve our community do so. I'd also like to raise another thing for those of us that are beginning to move sustainable community schools. One of the things that that we're seeing in a couple of places is that folks are actually engaging young people in learning entrepreneurship and also learning community development. If you live in a community and you don't understand power, you don't understand even how can I get a stop sign, then how will you ever change it? But if you understand, you know, why that liquor store on the corner of your block serves as your grocery store and why that same thing exists in St. Louis, Chicago, Detroit, Philly, wherever, our young people can learn how to come up with an expectation that they are in a measure of control. So our message to the On The Ground universe is to begin to look at quality of life committees in our communities, Begin to connect with people that are working on affordable housing, that are working on equity in public education, and begin to build political power around that. Now, if you work for 501c3, like I do, what we did is that many of our folks formed a political action committee. And our political action committee is called People United for Action, poor. And People United for Action has built a quality of life platform that includes education that includes housing, that includes the rights of our seniors, our elders. That's very comprehensive. So I would offer that is also something for us to think about. You know, if we build those quality of life committees, then imagine if those quality of life committees actually began to connect with, with each other nationally, like we're doing in the Journey for Justice Alliance. Then we could begin to have national quality of life platforms. So, Folks can, you know, uh, reply on, on, on the website, let us know what you think. But that's, you know, we just wanted to chop it up a little bit today, man, because gentrification is a nice word, but we are being purged from America's cities. But just because they say it so, don't make it so. We can do something about this. So with that, man, I want to thank you all for joining us. Brother Mike, much respect. I know that you, you out there swinging. <laughs> so brother, I appreciate you taking a few minutes to spend with us. And Maria, I always appreciate you, sister. I always respect the work that you've done, building an organization from scratch and making it a force in the state of Louisiana. So I want to thank both of you all for joining the On the Ground podcast today. Thanks for having us.
2: Thanks for having us. Appreciate it.
0: So that's our show for today, family. In closing, I just want to offer this song by one of the greatest guitarists that ever lived. This brother uh, is soulful. Uh, and I got into his music being a hip hop head because, you know, when you're an MC, um, it's all about the drum, right? It's all about that drum and you get it and and, and that drum hits you. And, and, and before you know it, you inside the rhythm. But also guitarists do that to you, too. You know, one of the brothers I, I listen to a lot is Wes Montgomery. And, then, you know, Wes Montgomery, you'd be mesmerized. Greg Green has that same ability. Very soulful brother. And jazz is important because the brother taught me this once. He said that jazz is African music with European instruments and that what we can't say we can play. So the name of this song is it ain't really so. And I want y'all to check it out today and y'all check us out next week on the ground.